powered through the Alaska Airline Studios. This is Bump and Stacy on Seattle Sports. Streaming through the Seattle Sports app. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Ross. Here we go now. Seahawks have some big decisions to make in free agency, and so do, obviously, 31 other teams. So let's talk about a few of those potential cap casualties. Brad Spielberger, Pro Football Focus, joining us right now on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. Hey, Brad, how's it going? Doing great. How you doing? Fantastic. Uh, we've been um, talking about a few of these potential uh, cap casualties for Seattle. Yesterday, uh, we talked about Will Disley. We've covered Quandre Diggs. But those are not the names that you pointed to when you looked at 32 candidates for each team. Who was the name that you chose for Seattle? Yeah, so it is interesting. You mentioned those two guys um, that are you know among the top, I want to say, six uh, cap hits in the entire uh, Seattle Seahawks you know cap yeah. budget sheet right now. So a very interesting kind of construction of that roster and how things look. So you're putting me on the spot here. I'm not even sure I remember who I had for Seattle. Oh, oh I do, of course. Of course. <laughs> uh, look, J- Jamal Adams, uh, I think, is a fairly easy decision there. You know, I think when the signing of Julian Love happened last offseason, kind of right away, that was a bit of a, a tell. And then, frankly, I think I wrote this in the article, too. Like, Devin Witherspoon is a guy that can come down the box, play in the slot, is that kind of hybrid role guy that can blitz, which obviously became a huge piece of Jamal Adams' Uh, you know, value and, and and just rushing the passer became a big part of his game. So they just they they kind of moved on in my eyes in, in how they addressed personnel last year. Uh, I do think Jamal Adams probably will be out the door this offseason. I think most people would uh, agree with you over here, uh, Brad. There's another name that scares me personally, man. I'm looking at Tyler Lockett and the the cap hit that he has this year. Um, he's going to be expensive. Do you feel like um his value matches up on the field to what his contract is? And if not, how do they work around this? Do you see a way that Tyler Lockett comes back, maybe on a restructured deal? Yeah, it's a great question because obviously there's also the emotional element and just like how important he is to the locker room and the city and been there for for the entire time. Really hasn't fallen off. I know he had a thousand yards, what, four years in a row before this past season, but still playing at a very high level. You know there's going to be a dip in production when you add a first-round receiver into the fold. And I know people might think there's a redundancy there or it's similar to what I just talked about with the safety spot, but I mean, they're, they're going to run a lot of 11 personnel uh, still, and they want to have three receivers on the field, um, especially you know, you bring in a guy like Ryan Grubb, who I think you're going to see less 12 personnel and, and more three-receiver sets. So maybe they try to negotiate a pay cut with him. Um, could be instead of an outright cut, you say, look, you know, $15.3 million salary, pretty large for a guy going to his age 32 season. We love you. We want you to be a Seattle Seahawk for life. Um, but can we maybe bring that number down, add some incentives, add some guarantees so there's protection on his end, um, but but that lower the overall value? I think that's a conversation that probably will be had between those two parties. I don't mean to jump outside of Seattle so soon, but it is from your article, and it's for obvious reasons. You wrote about Russell Wilson being uh, a cut candidate in Denver, and I don't think anyone would disagree. It's clear that that relationship is hurt. It's broken, that Sean Payton isn't a huge fan. I mean, Russell Wilson was benched for Jarrett Stidham. We all know what happened. So um, that all of that being said, though, uh, there are massive cap implications from cutting him and moving on. Can you talk a bit about the financial risk that Denver is taking there? Yeah, so it, it does seem like a foregone conclusion. Like that relationship has just, you know, deteriorated. But the NFL record for dead cap, which is essentially, you know, sunk cost cap hit that goes on your books for players that are not actually on your roster. The NFL record as of right now is Matt Ryan, right around $40 million Atlanta took on when they traded him to the Colts. 
The Broncos will have a total dead cap hit of $85 million, <laughs> oh um, you know, more than double the, the prior NFL record, uh, you know, when they, when they inevitably move on from Russell Wilson. Now there are offsets in guarantees. So what he makes from someone else will eat into that number a little bit, but yeah, it's, it's going to be a historic move, a record that probably won't be broken for some time, but it just seems like even beyond the benching, then the stories kind of came out about the, the arguments back and forth and going to the NFLPA. It, it just seems like there, there's not really a path back uh, to him being in Denver next year. I'm looking at the teams that um, that have some some cap issues, teams that are in the negative. And honestly, Brad, I, I look at those teams and I've learned over the years that there's always ways for um, for them to get out of those situations, right? What, what team do you, do you see at the bottom of the list when it comes to negative cap that you feel like are going to be okay and, and can uh, we can still expect some moves this offseason? Yeah, like you're saying, there's always ways to restructure deals, move things around, uh, and be able to spend. So if you're looking at the very bottom of that list, you know, your, your Chargers, Broncos, Dolphins, Saints, uh, you know, those type of teams, um, it, it, I think one that jumps out to me uh, that can clear a whole bunch of room fairly easily uh, is always the New Orleans Saints. They're going to restructure a million contracts, as we know. Um, and, and then also, uh, you know, I think Seattle is, is a decent example, too. Once you make a couple of tough decisions, some cuts, some, some pay cuts, you very quickly uh, can kind of clear some room. So one more I'll throw in is the Green Bay Packers. Uh, they kind of have these bloated salaries for some older players. I imagine David Bakhtiari is not there next year. That clears $20 million, uh, via a cut. So, yeah, there's a lot of cap maneuvering on the way, uh, and a lot of those teams at the bottom, it's not quite as bad as it might look. The Chiefs are in an interesting spot because you had Marquez Valdez-Scantling as their uh, cut candidate, and I think some people would hear that and go, well, duh, like immediately thinking of a couple drops, but uh, that's not an especially uh, deep or experienced wide receiver room, so for me, uh, I see that and go, God, I wonder what they're going to do with their pass catchers. Can you kind of see them making a, a move to acquire a wide receiver, either, you know, early as possible in the draft, maybe a big free agent signing. Is that kind of like maybe on your radar for this team? Yeah, so I do think Marquez will start with them asking for a pay cut, kind of like we just talked about with Tyler Lockett. Just, hey, we're not really comfortable paying you $12 million in cash, but you have been, you know, clutch in some playoff games. And, uh, you know, you do elevate players around you by stretching the field. Can you chop that number down? We'll add some incentives and we'll go from there. And and maybe there's a path forward. Because like you said, it, it is a little scary when you kind of have Rasheed Rice and, and a bunch of question marks, I do think we will see Kansas City. I don't know about a huge splash. Like they're, they're not a team that's going to go out and pay like a Mike Evans, but that second tier of player, your, your Calvin Ridley's, Marquise Brown, Darnell Mooney in Chicago, I think those guys, guys that are good separators, that can win at the intermediate and deep levels of the field, um, and if they do get open, Patrick Mahomes is going to find them, um, and they have good speed and, and space that can make players miss. Like I think they will find one of those guys, if I had to guess, and then still, you know, might take one of these great prospects at the bottom of the first round. Right. Your your brain just works different from mine. I, the numbers and capping and all that stuff you talk about, man, I'm glad we got you on because this might be a simple question, but I'm like, all right, what happens with Justin Fields? He's the, the biggest name out there when it comes to the quarterback position. Um, does How does his contract affect what maybe the Atlanta Falcons do if they were to grab him or maybe the Pittsburgh Steelers? How does that transa- transaction work? It is interesting because you know, there's a rule change in the last couple of years that changes the dynamic here where the reason why Chicago, one of the reasons why they're moving on is just because the fifth year option decision is this offseason, right? So you have to pick up this option for, for 2025. That is $22 million. And prior to a couple of years ago, 
That number used to be injury guaranteed only, but you could get out of it. If the player was healthy, you cut them with no penalty. Now that money is fully guaranteed the second you exercise it. So as soon as you do it, you have that full money on your books. You cannot get out of it unless, I guess, you you trade the player somewhere else. So that's what happened with the Sam Darnold trade to Carolina. They immediately lock in $18.8 million in fully guaranteed money. And obviously, before he even got to that year, they were already trying to find his replacement. So that does complicate matters a little bit because if you're going to trade, let's say, a second-round pick and change to go get Justin Fields, if you don't pick up the option, you're trading a second-round pick for one year of a player, and then if he plays well, you might be in like a Daniel Jones situation where you feel forced to give him a good deal. Um, maybe if you hadn't seen enough yet. So it's a fascinating dynamic. It's very interesting. He's as talented as they come. Um, I think a better situation could untap his potential, but there is certainly some risk cooked in there. You've got some really interesting stories in free agency this offseason, Brad. You've got the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Mike Evans, their most consistent wide receiver. He's about to become a free agent. You've got two really good defensive players headed by Chris Jones from a Kansas City Chiefs team whose defense just got them to a Super Bowl. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes is unstoppable. You've got Kirk Cousins. We're so used to seeing with the Vikings who's set to become a free agent. I mean, those are just a couple names. Obviously, there are a million. Uh, What are one or two names that you're just personally really interested in seeing what happens come this March? I I think you touched on two there because the big thing is always, you know, I put out these lists, I do these projections, these rankings, and then, of course, we see franchise tags come flying in. But Chris Jones, you know, and then it gets a little bit less fun. But Chris Jones (laughs) and Kirk Cousins, who are literally my first and second, you know, free agents, I don't think either guy gets tagged. Like Maybe Chris Jones, if Kansas City feels they just cannot let him go. Um, But I guess that doesn't happen. And then Kirk is, is untaggable. So it's fascinating. It's compelling to me. Like, is someone going to give Chris Jones a, you know, not quite Aaron Donald money, but close to Aaron Donald money? And then Kirk, is there going to be, you know, Atlanta and Pittsburgh and Las Vegas, and like all these teams that I imagine Denver maybe, you know, lining up to try to give him a deal. So those two are super, super compelling. Um, and then the last one for me, I guess, would be a couple teams. Like, how do Baltimore and Miami navigate having so many good players up for deals can they pay them all? Do they want to pay them all? Um, it's just they're probably both going to lose some really good players. Um, and how they navigate that next year will be very interesting. Speaking of franchise tag, we got Leonard Williams over here, who the, the Hawks got for a second round pick. They don't have a second round pick. You got Jordan Brooks, who's up for a deal. Um, who would you tag over here, if uh, if anybody? I don't think you need to use a tag. I, I do think you want to bring back Jordan Brooks. I think it was remarkable what he did coming off his injury being able to play right away. I think you saw him more and more comfortable, uh, you know, moving in space as a coverage linebacker, which is so key in today's NFL. Um, I thought he got more and more comfortable. So I think you do want to extend him. I don't think you need to place a tag on him. That's another funny contract quirk that the linebacker tag actually includes outside linebacker pass rushers. So it's this exorbitant number that we almost never see get applied to actual off ball linebackers because, you know, it's going to be 20, I want to say 23 plus million dollars. Um, and Brooks isn't quite there, but I do think he'd be, he should be a priority for them. And of course, Leonard Williams, you know, you, know, you don't buy into the sunk cost of, hey, we traded a second round pick, so we have to bring him back. Um, but, but you probably should. I think he was one of the best, if not the best Seahawks defenders to close out the year. You can move him around with Draymond Jones. They're both, you know, three tech, five tech, flexible players. 
Um, and, and Williams was just really, really good uh, with the short runway after the trade deadline. Hey, I know you're not like glued to Drew Locke's career, um, and and that's okay. He only had a, kind of like a, a major start here in Seattle, and it was a win, a come from behind win. It got people really excited, um, and there's kind of a split. Uh, with fans here in Seattle, Brad, where some folks really like the possibility of having Drew, who's younger and cheaper than Gino, versus Gino, who's got a $31 million cap hit this year. However, Drew is set to become an unrestricted free agent. And in theory, you think, oh, well, how expensive can he be to resign? But rather than talk just about Drew's market, what's that kind of like backup quarterback market looking like to you? Like, are there teams where you think like, yeah, if I'm Drew and I'm Drew's agent, I'm really testing this market? A hundred percent. And I think it's going to be, that's also going to be an uh, underrated storyline for us, like true football marriages. Like this past year, we saw more starts from backup quarterbacks than yeah. I want to say, like in a very, very long time. Like it was, it was kind of insane, frankly, how many guys, um, you know, had meaningful play, you know, games played over the course of the season, including, like you said, Drew, but I'll never forget him coming in, throwing that ball to Noah fans and like, you know, like staying in that game um, for Gino to come back in. So, I think it is going to be a strong market, but the interesting thing is there's a lot of really good, capable backups. Like, I think Ryan Tannehill is probably a backup now. I mentioned Gardner Minshew, Jacoby Brissett, Tyrod Taylor, um, and then I have Drew Locke as the next guy kind of in my ranking. So I think they'll do pretty well. You know, we got the one-year $4 million deal last year. I think it probably is in a similar range. The big one for me is if you're sitting there and you like Shane Waldron and had a good relationship with Shane Waldron, and the Bears say, hey, we want a veteran quarterback that knows the system, that can help bring along a, a number one overall pick. That could be a perfect kind of aligning of the stars, you know, for Drew Locke. Oh, that's a very interesting point I hadn't thought of. And shame on me for that. Uh, really good stuff uh, looking around the league with Brad Spielberger of Pro Football Focus. Thanks so much, Brad. We appreciate it. Thanks, Brad. Of course. Thank you, guys. Let's get to Four Down Territory. This is Four Down Territory, going inside the game with former Seahawks and Coug wide receiver Michael Bumpus. Let's talk Justin Fields. What's an interesting take you've heard on this entire situation? Yeah, man, Justin Fields is the hottest name right now when it comes to free agency. We talk about how important the quarterback position is, but he's been connected to the Falcons and the Steelers. Now, I heard a, a take from uh, Steve Weish. Am I saying his name right? He joins our show, right? Front of the show. Says uh, Arthur Smith, the new offensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers, says he doesn't want Justin Fields. I go, why wouldn't he want Justin Fields? He goes, look, he passed on Fields when he was the head coach in Atlanta with the number four pick. Instead, he goes with Kyle Pitts. At the time, they had Matt Ryan over there with ATL entering his 13th year, coming off a decent season individually, 3,900 yards, 20 touchdowns, 12 interceptions, but they did finish 4-12. and 12. And also Josh Rosen was on that that uh, that team, third team in three years. We all know that story. Um, he must have thought that Matt Ryan had something left in the tank, or he just didn't like Justin Fields at the time. This is a draft class for quarterbacks. The guys were drafted when Justin Fields was available. Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Mac Jones, Kyle Trask, Kellen Mond, who's not in the league, mm-hmm. Davis Mills, In Book, who's not in the league, and Sam Ellinger. If you go back now and you look at that, Justin Fields is the second best quarterback in yeah. this draft class. Trevor Lawrence of course doing his thing. Now I bring all this up and I talk about this to say look 
just because he didn't want them then doesn't mean he he won't want him now. You can have your evaluations of player pre-draft and all that good stuff. Look at what he did at Ohio State and be like, nah, not the guy for me. And maybe you thought Matt Ryan had more left in the tank. I think that's a, that's a dangerous take just because guys develop. This is his third year. He's got three years in the league now. So I hope Arthur Smith is looking at the film and making his judgment off of that. And it automatically made me think of my wife, Jennifer Bumpus. She didn't want me at first. But you know what I did? I developed. I worked on some stuff. All right. And then she snatched me up. So I'm looking at that. I go, look, Mike Tom is going to make the final call. Arthur Smith is going to want a guy that he thinks he can work with over there. And I think that he can. In Tennessee, he worked with Ryan Tannehill, Marcus Mariota as well. He's worked with mobile quarterbacks before. So just because he didn't want him back then doesn't mean he doesn't want him now. I'm interested to see where he ends up. I think Atlanta or Pittsburgh is a good spot for him. Second down. If the Seahawks were to go offense with their number 16 overall pick in the draft, who would you want to see them take? Yeah, so I think you and I both want them to go defense, mm-hmm. and they, they probably will, but who knows? Things happen in the draft that, that change your approach. If I'm looking at offense, the first place I'm looking at is offensive line, and that young man Troy Fautanu over there with University of Washington. I watched film on him last night, and he's better than advertised. My guy is 6'4", he's a bit undersized for that tackle spot, but he plays with a great base and technique. He has strong hands. His go-to move is once the DNs or edge rushers try to put hands on him, has a great just slap his hands down type of move, gets his hands inside. I watched the way that he moves when they ask him to pull on these GT, these counters or whatnot, and I guarantee you he's played a skill position at one point of his life. The way he moves his feet, how agile he looks, I see him at a left or right guard spot and causing havoc with these pulls and getting up to that second level. I like that. Now, the guy who um, who I really like, okay? Now, we talk about this tight end room. What are you going to do with Uncle Will Disley? Kobe Parkinson's been developing. You have to sign him. Noah Fan, are you going to sign him as well? You could not sign one of those guys and pick up this guy right here, uh, Brock Bowers out of Georgia. Bold. Man, I look at this dude. At he 16? Is, he is easily. He's he's. I've seen him drop all the way down to 18. I've seen him as high as the top 10. It's going to be a risk because he has a couple injuries, right? But I look at what he does. He's the type of tight end that everyone's looking for now. He's the George Kittle type. He's the Travis Kelsey type. He's the Sam Laporta type. He gets busy with the ball in his him. You have to surround him with guys who do the things that he doesn't do, though, or isn't great at, which is getting in the trenches and blocking. I see him matched up with whoever it is. It could be Will Disley. It could be Noah Pham. It could be Kobe Parkinson. You insert him into a dynamic tight end room, I think he's going to be good to go, man. So uh, I like it. I, I, I know it's a risk, but I'm going with the O-line and the tight end room if you do get to that point. The tight end is one of the, it's not that he's not insanely talented. And Curtis, do you remember, was it Field Gates who had him mocked at number 16 to he Seattle? Did, yeah. Um, it's not that we haven't seen him mocked before, nor is it that we haven't seen tight ends picked high. I mean, high, Kyle Pitts to Atlanta. Um, but Noah Fan also first rounder, obviously not by Seattle. Uh, but it is one of those positions where I always go, what? Yeah. <laughs> I say that knowing yesterday in four downs, you talked about the importance of tight ends Telling for you, Super Bowl teams. This dude Man. is special. Third down. There's news out of New England, and it has you thinking, you know what? You can teach an old dog new tricks. What is it? You can, man. And Robert Kraft might be one of the oldest dogs in the league, him and Jerry Jones, right? <laughs> and, um, man, side note, I just saw Jerry Jones is worth $13.6 billion. That's crazy. Rich I didn't is, know he was worth that Rich much. Richest owner in the game. Um, but I'm looking at Robert Kraft, and I go, look, you just hired what everyone says is like your son and Mayo over there. Young guy getting an opportunity. And I listened to Mayo speak 
Um, I love his demeanor. He seems like a great leader and has good relationships. But the thing that stuck out to me the most when I listened to Mayo was he said you got to have or he wants his staff to have a good relationship with the media. Bill Belichick did not have a good relationship with the media. Now, with Mayo being as close as he is to Robert Kraft, you have to think they've been talking about this and they're on the same page. He goes, all right, let's try something different. And big ups to Belichick, one of the greatest, if not the greatest coach of all time. That's just not the way he operated. And maybe that calls for a bit more stressful of a of a media room when he did walk into there. With Mayo being younger, being from a different generation, I think he realizes that the media is not going anywhere. They're going to post about you. They're going to talk about you. Not saying you got to cater to the media, but he goes, look, let's just try something different. And he wouldn't take that approach if Robert Kraft didn't have his back on that. So I go to the man upstairs making all the calls, and I go, you can keep teaching old dog new tricks because it would be easy for Robert Kraft to be like, well, this is how we do it in New England. I've done it for 20-something years. We've had success. This is the way I want you to approach it. Instead, Mayo comes out there and says, look, let's switch it up. And I'm, I'm happy to see that, and I, and I want to see um, how this ends up. It's always interesting, the conversation about the relationship between media and coaches, media and players, media in the league. Uh, I think that there's this natural assumption that media is evil because we see media. I know we're part of media, but we collectively as people see media as being this huge thing when it's yeah. so many different parts and there are so many different incentives. When I think of sports media, I think of like Bob Condota, friend of the show, local beat writer for Seattle Times. Those are the types of people that are talking to these coaches every day. Mm -hmm. They're not out to get them. They usually know them. They've been covering the team for years and years and years. And usually the entire goal of going out there that day is to be like, hey, so uh, tell me something interesting about what you're doing this week. Mm -hmm. No one's trying to hurt anyone. They're just trying to get in and get out and, <laughs> and post their stories so they can exactly. leave. Um, so I think that's a good idea. I think that that's a good way to see it is like, not only does no one have the resume Belichick did to be like awful to reporters for no reason, it just doesn't really help you anymore. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah. Uh, fourth down. What disappointing news did you hear about the combine and who are you still excited to see? Uh, disappointing news, Cooper DeJean will not test at the Combine. If you don't know who that is, it's a young quarterback out of University of Iowa. Now, listen up, okay? There are some things to be true, all right? Now, you, you, people are going to say, but why are you bringing up race? Because this is the world no, that we live in. this is an important point. This is important, okay? <laughs> Cooper DeJean is a white corner, right? I, I haven't seen a white corner in the NFL ball out since Jason Seahorn. Folks. Okay? And listen, there are some things that – that uh that are to be true if a, if a white dude steps on the football field and he's at corner he's gonna get everybody's best shot if a white dude steps on the basketball court at valleys and brothers on the court they're going to go after him so just the mental toughness of this young man to play that position and to excel at that position i tip my cat i go you go through battles that a lot of people won't even understand that you go through he's mentally tough i'm disappointed i'm not going to see him but he had a, a leg injury so i understand that Big ups to Cooper DeJean. That's like me, first time walking into a country club. I'm the only brother out there. I go, I got to hit I gotta hit it straight off this first tee. Are they going to judge me? All right, I feel you, Cooper. You do your thing. I'm happy for you, but you go ahead and rest. But I still want to see Michael Penix. I want to see him spin the ball. Me too. Uh, you're listening to Bump and Stacey on Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. Well, we've heard a lot about college coaches getting sick and tired of changes at the college level, and that's why they all want to leave to the pros. Finally, for the first time, we're hearing some pushback from another college coach. That's next. This is The Timeline with Bump and Stacy. Brought to you by 1-800-DUI-AWAY. Well, 
there's a big debate happening when it comes to college football. Uh, and in particular, it's about coaching and the changes to college football and how that's affecting the move of many coaches to the pros. Adam Schefter just tweeted about this recently. Um, the Chargers, who obviously hired Jim Harbaugh out of Michigan, uh, recently hired uh, a coach out of USC to be their running, back, running backs, excuse me, coach. And um, Adam Schefter said, you know what? This is a big trend we're seeing is a lot of guys are leaving college because of all the changes that are happening. In fact... Recently, Nick Saban, who also recently retired, said that he wants to bring about meaningful change again to college football. This is what he told ESPN in an interview that was published just today. He said, I love the players. I love college football. What we have now is not college football, not college football as we know it. Here's somebody use the word student athlete. That doesn't exist. So we know that there are many coaches Chip Kelly, Jim Harbaugh, um, Jeff Halfley, who left Boston College to become the new Packers DC, Nick Saban, obviously today, who have kind of complained about these changes and how college football isn't the same as it used to be. The new twist to this entire debate is Arizona State University head coach Kenny Dillingham. He was on 98.7 Arizona Sports and had some very strong words about these coaches who are complaining and coaches who are leaving college football. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I joke around, but you know how many people want my job? <laughs> like, you know how many people want my assistant coach's jobs uh -huh. and my analyst jobs and the, and the QB and the GA's jobs? So don't complain about what we do. You're blessed. There's a lot of negative of it, yes. But do you know how many people want to be a college football coach? I literally spent nine years of my life doing anything to become a coffee boy. So don't give me don't give me the oh it's hard to be a college coach right now. Yeah, it's hard. Then quit. Mm. I mean, I love this debate. Yeah, I love it. One, my man is 33 years old. He sounds older than that in that clip. He sounds like a seasoned <laughs> veteran. He sounds um, like he looks like Chip Kelly. Yeah, before I react <laughs> to that, let me tell you a story about Dillingham. So last year, I go down to the Pac-12 conferences right in Las Vegas. Thank you, Pac-12, for flying me out there a couple of days. It was good. You're talking to people. You're networking, doing all that good stuff. So it's the banquet part, not the banquet, the dinner part of the situation. And um, every analyst for the Pac-12 is at a table with a head coach and, and random other people. And I, I, I sit down at the table and I go, who's the head coach? I don't recognize anybody. Everybody looks like they're 30 years old. And I look to my right and I go, Hey, man, how you doing, Michael Bumpus? Uh, what's your name? What, what do you do for the Pac-12? He goes, I'm the head coach for Arizona State University. <laughs> man, I felt so dumb in that moment. I go, how did I not recognize this dude? Because uh, he was he born in so 1990. Young, and it was his first year, so, you know, yeah. I, I didn't make he the connection yet. But uh, awesome dude. I appreciate that conversation that we had. Now to, to react to what he said, he's right. One, I said this weeks ago when Nick Saban decided to retire. I said the reason why he's retiring is because it's no longer and even uh, uh, he no longer has the advantage, right, when it comes to getting recruits to come to Bama. Mm -hmm. You got to pay these dudes now, and that's a world that he just doesn't want to live in. Also, let's not act like Alabama has never paid for players before. Please. I have no documentation. No one from Alabama has told me this, but I played college football, and let me tell you, that stuff goes down. It's yes. been going down since I was in college yes. back in 2004 to eight. okay? Um, and it is hard. And Dillingham is right. So many people want this job. I think Nick Saban is is at a, a position of privilege that he's earned. He is the best college coach of all time. And the game has changed so much that he doesn't want to deal with it. He doesn't have to deal with it because he has made his money, won his championships, and he can move on. 
But there is always going to be somebody who wants to coach Alabama. There's always going to be somebody who wants to coach Arizona State. Is it hard? Yes, it is hard. Being a coach at any level is hard. And it's, it's hard now, especially because uh, uh, the college and in, in, in dealing with NILs and your collectives and fundraising or whatnot. So all, all coaches are going to do, they're just going to evolve with the game. Nick Saban's at a point in his career where he don't have to evolve. He don't want to evolve. A guy like Dillingham who's 33 years old, oh, he's going to evolve because he's just getting started. He want, He's just gotten the game, so he's going to do his thing. So um, I appreciate his take. I think that um, older coaches who don't like the way it's going aren't going to agree with it, and they're going to have their gripes about it. But what can you do? Until things change, until there are some regulations on this thing, and even when there are some regulations, you're still going to have to fundraise and NIL and do all your collective deals. So, no, I appreciate it. But I also think that Nick Saban can say and do whatever the heck he wants to. Yeah. I think that – a couple things. First, you're absolutely right. I mean, Nick Saban saying, oh, that concept of student athlete, that's changed. Now, I know Nick Saban coached for 19 years, and I do believe that college football was different early in his career, whether with LSU or in his early years with Alabama, than it was later in his career. Um, obviously, uh, last season, season before, season before that. However, it is not like within the last five years or since transfer portal rules changed or since NIL became a thing that student athlete has been kind of a warped messaging. That has ceased to exist for for a while. When I was in college, student athletes were not becoming like doctors and taking double majors and focusing on studies and doing 4.0 work because they didn't need to. Because your primary goal and your primary job, it's a transactional relationship, mm-hmm. was you're going to be on the field, you're going to be the best player, you're going to do everything you can do, and you came here in order to get that spotlight, in order to do that for this program. Uh, and the nature of that relationship is not uh, a educational relationship it is inherently transactional whether or not that everyone goes to the pros that is inherent to that relationship and that agreement and that scholarship now you can have some folks that say oh well going to college is always about getting an education it's about getting that scholarship and yeah that's fine but you can't ignore the fact that college sports particularly college football and men's basketball has always had that kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, mm-hmm. uh, under the radar stuff. Like I have had friends who have played, as you have, Bump, and you've also played, obviously, who have talked about. I mean, Jake used to talk about he went to a school that literally offered him like a suitcase of money. Yeah, he did not take it, but like, wink. But it was that kind of <laughs> like, yeah, we'll just you leave it here. Was? You think about, huh? I'll tell you off air. Right. Well, you think you think about it. You think about what school, you know, uh, you know whether you want to come uh-huh. here. Like Jake isn't old by any means, but I mean, this was yeah. this was not last year. And Jake was like state quarterback, Gatorade His player of the recruit. year type exactly. stuff. Exactly. Like, so like this is happening to guys, mm-hmm. and um, I I think that there is a reality to the changing landscape of college football. You, me, and Curtis talked about this not long ago, where we were like. Uh, it was when Washington had like two remaining starters from their national championship team, mm-hmm. including their head coach leaving. And we were all like, man, it's such a bummer. Like there is this aspect of college sports that's changed because of the transfer portal. And it sucks. Like, I hate that my team changes that drastically year in and year out. And I hate that there feels like there's not parity. You're an alum of a school that is in a conference that has ceased to exist in large part because of money, because of that lack of parity, because of all of those things. So it's not like it's flawless. No, nah, man, there, there was a time where there was no such thing as free agency in the NFL. You, you got drafted by that team. That's the team that you're going to play for. They're going to pay you whatever um, they they feel you're valued at, and things change. And it, you know what it did to the NFL? It became harder to win Super Bowls, all right? That's all this is doing for NCAA. The thing about the NCAA, though, is that um, there are some things to be true. 
you get into these certain programs, you're going to get on TV. You're going to get more eyes on you. You'll have more opportunities to do it. This is just the change that happens in every sport. And, yeah, and look, I took my trips to LSU, USC, Arizona State, UCLA, and Washington State. Some things went down. And that was 20 years ago, right? Things were down was 20 years ago. So to act like um, this is a, a brand new situation, it is when it comes to guys really getting that big bag. But this has always been a part of sports. As long as there's their competition and you're competing for someone's service, um, there are going to be some things going on. And that's why these kids go to these schools because they can provide a service for you, mm-hmm. which helps the university get money, helps these other uh, teams on campus get money. And uh, it is what it is. So I look. I, I will never knock Nick Saban, man. No. He, he is one of the greatest of all time. I just think that, um, you know, he's long in the tooth, and he don't like the way it's going, and that's fine, but this is what it is. Yeah, and it's, again, the, the priority is that you stay eligible. The priority is for a lot of coaches that you develop into, like, a smart, capable young man. But the understanding is that this relationship is you're a football player yeah. or you're a basketball player or you're a track star, whatever it is. And I think to pretend otherwise is a little uh, naive. And I know that Nick Saban doesn't actually believe that. I think the issue that he has is that these coaches have no control over what Mm -hmm. the rosters will look like. And that can be very frustrating. If I was a coach, I'd probably complain. I think that, you know, for Kenny, he's like, well, this is the world I inherited. And I have so desperately wanted to be here that, like, I understand that a million other people would want to be here, too. So if it's not the world you like anymore, fine. But it's a it's rarefied air. Like I said, put these kids on two-year contracts. Got to be there for two years. You can only transfer once and then go do what you do. All right, you guys. Um, We, let's see. um, There's a Mariners event I didn't talk about. I'll mention that at the end when when Brandon joins us in studio. We're going to talk about Mariners at noon, have a little bit of like a roundtable kind of situation. And there's a fun event that I want to let you guys know about happening at T-Mobile. So that will be coming your way in about 20 minutes. Before we get to that, 2024 in the NFL was the year of the backup quarterback. It not only taught us an important lesson, but really, really dictates what could be an interesting storyline in free agency. Don't go anywhere. Bumpin' Stacy, Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On Seattle Sports. Here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Rost. All right, coming up at noon, we're going to do a little bit of a Mariners roundtable with Brandon Gustafson. Lots to talk about with Mariners spring training. Before we get to it, an interesting point made by Brad Spielberger. He's a reporter for Pro Football Focus, and if you missed it, he was on with us at 11 talking about free agency. The reason we had him on is because his number one cut candidate for the Seattle Seahawks is Jamal Adams, so we were talking about free agency and about some of those cap casualties, but... My last question to him was, hey, what's this market going to look like for Drew Locke? Like, he's set to become an unrestricted free agent. I know we're talking about a quarterback battle as though, like, Drew is just automatically going to be here, but the Seahawks still have to resign him. What are these other teams going to be, you know, what's the market going to be looking like for Drew? And he brought up a really, really interesting point about an underrated storyline about free agency. This past year, we saw more starts from backup quarterbacks than yeah. I want to say like in a very, very long time. Like it was kind of insane, frankly, how many guys had meaningful play, you know, games played over the course of the season, including, like you said, Drew. So I think it is going to be a strong market. But the interesting thing is there's a lot of really good, capable backups. Like I think Ryan Tannehill is probably a backup now. I mentioned Gardner Minshew, Jacoby Brissett, Tyrod Taylor. Um, and then I have Drew Locke as the next guy kind of in my ranking. So 
I think he'll do pretty well. You know, he had a one-year, $4 million deal last year. I think it probably is in a similar range. I got to be honest. I did not consider this storyline. Now, we talked about putting a bow on the 2024 season bump, and one of the things that we talked about, about learning or about being surprised by, is, like, how many backups ended up playing. Like, there was a huge – at one point we were talking about, like, you know, hey, it's uh, Jake Browning and Aiden O'Connell. Like, it was just a weird season with lots of injuries. I didn't think about how much that would be affecting free agency. Yeah, it's um, direct correlation, right? When you see the QBs going down at the rate that they have the last couple of years, you put the note down on the show sheet, uh, 66 this year and 68 last year. Um, that makes that position that much more important. You know what it does for a guy like Drew Locke, who might be a backup quarterback? It says, give me a little bit more money on top of that because numbers show that – more than likely, your quarterback is going to go down at some point. And what that does for his agent, it gives him leverage when it comes to negotiating these contracts. Now, there are – you can look at the numbers and say, okay, every team played with a backup quarterback, but then you look at some situations like the, the Browns where they play three or four guys and other teams. Um, I don't like it for the quarterback that's being injured because you don't want to see that, but I do like it for the backup quarterback because you do have guys like Drew Locke, who I feel is capable. I feel like – He's going to get another opportunity to be a starter in this league. It's only a matter of time because of the way that the guys are getting hurt and going down. So it's uh, it's interesting, man. I didn't realize that many quarterbacks had gone down, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because here in Seattle, for the most part, Russell Wilson played every single snap. Uh, Geno came in for a three or four game stress a few years back. But even this year, Geno went down and Drew had to come in for a couple of years. So all this tells me is that guys like Drew Locke, Jacoby Brissett, uh, whoever is back, Taylor. Taylor, anyone who's backing up like a, a second to third tier type quarterback or has the potential to back them up just has more leverage when it comes to negotiating their contracts. Um, he also talked specifically about Drew Locke and where Drew could land. Here's what he said. If you're sitting there and you like Shane Waldron and had a good relationship with Shane Waldron and the Bears say, hey, we want a veteran quarterback that knows the system that can help bring along a, a number one overall pick, that could be a perfect kind of aligning of the stars, you know, for Drew Locke. I think that when we're looking at kind of the entire Drew Geno conversation and when we're looking at the conversation about quarterback value overall, granted it's two different conversations. This makes it really interesting to me because number one, we all kind of like to disparage a lot of quarterbacks. This isn't just a way to defend Geno. We all like to kind of disparage quarterbacks who aren't perfect without recognizing how desperate that market becomes sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a good reminder of like really what the competition looks like. And secondly, I had not very seriously consider the possibility that Drew could be going to Chicago to join Waldron's offense and that Seattle could be looking at having Geno and then what? And then you kind of have to use a draft pick on a Mm -hmm. quarterback or maybe get one in free agency or maybe get an undrafted rookie. Yeah, that's, um, again, to echo what you said, that's a scenario that I didn't even think of. Drew Locke going over there and maybe even starting the first four, five, six games and uh, and then bringing in a rookie and and seeing what Caleb does. But what that does is it gives – the backup quarterback, like a Drew Locke, who has a potential to be a, a starter, a a chance to get more film out there and prove to the league that he's more than capable and ready. And at the same time, you're allowing this young quarterback to learn from his success and mistakes and say, all right, wait until I get my turn to go out there and do my thing. Uh, this is a great time to be a backup quarterback because the numbers say that they're going to get in that ball game and have an opportunity. So I wish... 
I hope Drew Locke falls into a situation like that mm-hmm. to where he is going to be the starter the very first game of the season. And maybe he goes to Chicago and puts together a good three or four games. And then they say, you know, we don't need Caleb right now. Just, just chill for a little bit. Keep developing. But you know what the media does, man. And you know what the crowd is going to want. They're going to be Caleb Chance. We want Caleb. Get him out there. Unless the Bears were 4-0 or 5-0 and with Drew Locke, you're going to hear that. But, um, no, it's uh, everyone loves a backup quarterback. Because they give you optimism. They give you reason to believe if the starter ain't getting it done. But for the most part, guys are backups for a reason, right? When I was done playing ball, um, I was third or fourth in the depth chart. While I'm in the mix, I'm like, man, what's going on? I should be playing. But then you get older, I go, yeah, those guys are probably better at some things that I wasn't uh, as good at. And you start to realize it. But um, that's the mentality you're supposed to have as an athlete out there, that you want to be out there and you should be out there. So, um. I love that scenario for Drew, and I hope it goes down. What are some of your burning questions about the Seattle Mariners? We are going to have Brandon Gustis in his studio. He covers the Mariners for Seattle Sports. Um, he has been tracking the offseason closely, so Bump and I have our own questions, and it's not just going to be like a Q&A thing. We're going to just in general have a bit of a roundtable talking about the start of spring training, all the things we're most excited about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you guys do have some questions, Brandon's in with us for a longer segment, so we can get some of those in. You can text them to the Mac and Jack's text line, 866 Seven nine three seven seven six. That's next.